Hold on to your butt. Welcome to episode 38 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. I'm your co-host, Mary. No, no, we don't. But well, just but- thank you to, for taking the time to do that. Um, and just to you, Darren, for being, a, I know. Um, but I'm positive he can spell better than me. And he knows how to utilize my employee discount at the DQ, as he showed this past weekend on social media. Nothing better than a half-price price blizzard, Mary. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> it looked kind of like my half-assed intro. Oh, yeah. That was on um, Spellbird than you. Okay. What the hell that came from? But well, hey, just whatever. Twitter, hey. Just something on Twitter today as well as um, – oh, I was going to make, oh, re- that's was gonna right. be, that's make right. reference to you being a New Englander and a certain type of word for them. But oh, awesome. Decided, Yeah, exactly. Awesome. That's okay. Hey, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Hey, we'll have fun with that anyway. So how are you? What's going on? How are things? How are things since our last we last talked on a, on the live on Saturday? Good. How are you doing? Room. Living the dream. Living the dream. It's been a good couple of days. We had a good live. We get to talk a little Chancellorsville this week and next week. We're going to leave everyone with that cliffhanger we on this are. one. Well, it's I'm, I'm sure they've guessed what the cliffhanger is going to be. Mm-hmm. But what they yeah, don't we'll know is what, what we're but what they don't know yet is what we're drinking. Oh, good segue. Like that? Picture. You go first as always because you know. Well, I am drinking Double Lunatic Fridge, which is a double IPA from Toboggan Brewery out of London, Ontario, which I didn't think I would be be able to have that again until everything opened back up, but mm-hmm. one of the local Lickbos in my county sells it, so I've been going there to get it. And I'm drinking it out of my John Reynolds mug. Because that's the closest thing I had to anybody who was at Chancellorsville today. Okay. Well, not bad. Well, nice done. I'm drinking a germ beer called Flotzengringer, I guess. How the hell it looks? That's what it looks like to me. Very and I'm nice. drinking it because it's a German beer because the 11th core. I don't know if you've heard, but oh, how is this one there? So we'll talk <laughs> about that. And I'm drinking it out of our company mug, our Civil War Breakfast Club Very mug. Very nice. Because I don't have anything for Chancellorsville either. I need to go to Chancellorsville soon and get myself a mug. You do. I think I will. I think I'll do that pretty soon. So anyway looking forward to talking to this one for a while this is one of the big battles one mm-hmm. of the battles that I thought we have a whole bunch of soldiers uh, pretty much if you're into the summer of 1863 which i think was a brian adams song i think but it, it, you summer of 69 say same thing close but you <laughs> have for you the have, reference to the canadian singer by the way you know, well, there you go another short canadian by the way but this is where a lot of the people in the summer of 63 start coming out that we're going to see in gettysburg a few months later yep. so we'll start to see that core structure grow a little bit we're going to see a lot of those familiar names but this is a good one this one we're gonna have a lot of fun talking about it really is a for the union it is a it's a roller coaster as they say mm-hmm. as they started very very low in the, the winter got very very high and got very very low again but we're going to um, do half of the battle tonight, and we're going to talk about some different things. So I think what we should probably do is, again, we should take Cher's advice again, and let's go. Let's. Go. If I could turn back time. <laughs> so as I was saying. I'll just edit um, that out, my singing. Oh, God, on windows, <laughs> my neighbor have broken. But, but we'll go back to what we, we talked about the episode a few months ago. We talked about um, Ambrose Burnside and his mud march post-Fredericksburg. We're going to kind of take real quick some highlights from that as it sets up into this. Because mm-hmm. it's important to set up this battle with where we finished off that last time. So um, Chancellorsville is in Spotsylvania County. We'll get to that here in a little bit. But going back to the winter of 62, post-Battle of Fredericksburg, the armies find themselves after the battle on both sides of the Rappahannock River. Things are quieting down. They're having fun with each other. They're taunting each other. They're playing music. They're taking requests, believe it or not. They're Hopefully they're not playing sweet. musical chairs. You know, but they're playing songs like Home Sweet Home, which Motley Crue, I guess, did that song back then. The conditions are really, really bad. It was cold. Um, both armies were dealing with the cold. They were hungry. They had, the clothes were all torn up with Lee and had fun, yep. especially Jackson. And you got to give this was their high moment. Now yep. we're gonna uh, that really bad battle of Fredericksburg where they got pantsed, one sided as ever you're gonna find. It's cold out. You're getting soldiers about upwards in some cases of ten thousand per day are getting sick. Two thousand per day are deserting. You're having enlistments expiring and they're not signing up again. They want nothing to do with this army. So January twenty first of eighteen sixty three. This is the infamous mud march we talked about. Uh, with Ambrose Burnside, he's going to get stuck in the mud. He's going to fall back to camp. I will refer to you to our previous episode for all the details. It's all going to you, Mary, because you don't look like what you're talking about here. Also, Lincoln is having a really crappy time as well. So he's having this really bad 62, starts up a really bad 63. He's got the Congress. He's got the Copperheads. They're all all over his ass because they want results. They're, they're putting up the money and the soldiers for this war, and they're getting nothing back for mm. it. 
All the only good thing is, he has going into 63 is the uh, the victory at Stones River and then signing, right. the, signing the emancipation as well. Like those those two things. But still, there's a lot overshadowing the good that has happened. Well, he's having a real tough time in the East and they're closer to D.C. Fredericksburg is about an hour from Washington. And so for the fifth time, he is going to reach into his bag of generals and pull out a new one. And he's going to find himself Joseph Hooker. And we're going to talk a lot about him. Good Massachusetts man. Another arrogant Massachusetts guy. was another story. I think New England might have produced some of the best of the story. Oh, who knows? But he's a point going into that that third day. They're still feeling good. They're still feeling really, really good. The plan's different than what 1814, November 13th, and Hadley, Mass. Good good Mass boy. He's the grandson of an American Revolutionary War captain. West Point class of 1837, right in the middle, right in 29th out of 50, graduates with the great Braxton Bragg. Do you know where Braxton Bragg graduated in that class, Mary? He was pretty high up when he graduated, wasn't he? Was he? He was number five. Old Braxy was number five. Graduated with John C. Pemberton. We'll talk about it pretty soon. John Sedgwick, who was part of this battle. William French, they were all in this class. He ends up graduating, finds himself in Mexico under Zachary Taylor, who's in every episode, apparently, and Winfield Scott. He gets breveted for gallantry at the Battle of Chapultepec and Monterey. All the ladies, Mary, love old Joe Hooker. They mm-hmm. call him the handsome captain. So that's mm-hmm. what they call him. So, you know, he gets in a little grief with old Winfield Scott, ends up in his uh, his doghouse in 1853, because during the court-martialing of Gideon Pillow, he testifies against Winfield Scott. And so right off the bat, you know, you know what's going bad. 1859, he's going to, you know, he's going to find himself back in the army again. He's going to leave for a bit. Ends up in California in the California militia. So as the probably war enjoying begins, some California girls. Um, another song, probably. Yeah, he probably took advantage of. <laughs> Beach Boys you know, was the first concert I ever went to. Yeah, well, wow. So it probably was back then. Though. <laughs> but he, so he applied in 1860 when the war begins. Uh, so the war begins. He applies for a commission. So of course, Winfield Scott gets it. Nope denies it he's still pissed off he can't blame him he finally gets it after bull run so bull run he still complains to lincoln that the military is completely misrun and this is going to be his downfall we're going to talk about as he can't stop talking mm-hmm. just can't stop running his mouth you know ends up borrowing money from a bar owner in california gets sent back east that's how he gets over here in 1861 in august he gets appointed brigadier general they backdate it to may but that's pretty much what he's done and of course he serves under george mcclellan because why wouldn't he Right. Yeah. So he fights in Antietam, gets hurt. He fights, ironically, fights Stonewall Jackson to a standstill in the West Woods and the cornfield. But he's always got that history of complaining. He's that guy who was always bitching about his superiors. You know, picture someone you work with, the old DQ, you know, someone who gets to work the, the frosty machine, you know, and you want to do it. But, but he's, he is someone who just can't stop. He wants the big job, is what he wants. He thinks yeah. he's better than what he is. He's openly complaining about Burnside at Fredericksburg afterwards, just openly bitching about him. And he's going to get appointed, but Fighting Joe, they called him because his name was in the newspaper. And He didn't like that a, name, though. He didn't like it, and he did like And they put a dash next to between the Fighting the Joe, and someone took it off, and they made him a nickname, Fighting yep. Joe, and that, that became his nickname. But he's, you know, he was a dashing guy, six feet tall, blue mm-hmm. eyes, in a much bearded army. He was a clean-shaven dude. Yeah, bachelor. He yeah, Bachelor wrote a white stallion. I mean, this is like Fabio of 1863, right? He rode with music, slow motion in the background, like, you know, David Hasselhoff and Baywatch when he came around him. But he was very <laughs> popular with the soldiers. And we'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But he was a big drinker. He was a big fan of the ladies, Mary, we talked about. And But you know what? Lincoln, he loved the enthusiasm. He loved the aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. Because after Burnside and McClellan, this guy had a pulse and, you know, mm-hmm. it's a, he's going to fall out of love here pretty soon. But at the time, he's going to really focus on rebuilding that army. And this is when the McClellan thing helps him because he has a little bit of history being with the guy who helped build the army. Exactly. So he sees he makes a lot of changes that are going to really make a big, uh, a big difference. Yeah. And the one thing that he was going around saying before Lincoln appointed him was that, you know, the army needed a dictator. And so Lincoln wrote him that letter where he was like, I'm not making you commander because of this. It's in spite of this. And he's like, I'm willing to risk the dictatorship. Just bring me a fucking victory, dude. So as you say, he he reorganizes the AOP because they desperately need it. Their morale is horrible. There's all the desertions, as you said. And one of the things that he does is, you know, he's going to improve rations for them because, you know, back then they didn't know what we know today about vitamin deficiencies and all that. A lot of the men had scurvy and they were very, very sick because of that. 
So he made sure that they were getting, you know, fresh vegetables. He had bakeries built so that they could have soft bread because the men were getting a little bit tired of hardtack. So they had soft bread three or four times a week. He also improved sanitary conditions as well as as well as conditions in the medical tents, but his surgeon really improved those conditions. He also designed like kind of um, a furlough system so that men could have a bit of a break and go home. And the other thing that happened as well, and Lincoln does help with this, is they kind of provide like amnesty for those who have deserted. They give them until a certain date that they have to rejoin the army by. And you can imagine when you're at the bottom of the barrel as a soldier and you cannot wait to get this, this friggin' mud barge in the cold and you get your butt kicked off Fredericksburg. You've got a guy who's giving you four times a week, you're going to get fresh bread, vegetables two times a week. He's going to get rid of that whole grand division thing that we saw in Fredericksburg mm-hmm. and put them into core. We'll yep. talk about that here in a bit. He does a lot of stuff, practical things for the army as well. He reorganizes the cavalry as well as the artillery into separate corps commands, which ends up being really important. He keeps the reserve artillery with Hunt, that you know Henry mm-hmm. Hunt. He also creates the Bureau of Military Information, which is a huge boom. So he's going to create this intelligence service that's a, basically an organization of civilian spies slaves, some Pinkerton's professional guys to really create a real intelligence. You're going to see a lot of that in these battles going even post hooker. And it's going to be a real coup to help um, to find out what the Confederates are doing. Um, he, he reorganized the quartermaster to your, to your point in the medical supplies. In a nutshell, he's going to get his men fed and he's going to get them clothed. And that's going to be a big, big deal. And the morale you know, it, too, as well. Like the core and he, the other thing too, he does is the core badges, the insignia. So they have something to rally around. Which he takes actually it was originally Carney who did it, but Carney mm-hmm. is not not around anymore. Dan Butterfield who gets the idea assign them to each corps that they will all have a symbol. Mm-hmm. So that's where you get you know the that's why the eleventh corps is the crescent moon because of that. You look at the the complete night and day these soldiers went through. So you mm-hmm. you went from being told to hunt for your own food sometimes having no shoes. Now you've got legit bread, you've got vegetables, you've got the Dairy Queen being put in the Chatham Manor in Fredericksburg <laughs> with the employee discount. They all got the discount automatically. You didn't have to ask for this gave it to you. They were extremely happy. They liked Hooker, the furlough thing, the sanitation, the whole deal. The condition of the camp was significantly better. And you know what it did? It rejuvenated them again. So mm-hmm. the cause they had of fighting for the union, okay? And at this point, it was also fighting for the slavery. It was a post-emancipation proclamation. But they went from what are we fighting for to getting that fired up again. So he's like that football coach in one of those movies where he gets them all fired up again. And that's important because on the Confederate side, even though the Rebs are having the same crappy experience with the shoes and the food, they didn't get the discount at the DQ. They paid full no, price when they went. Exactly. But they had a high morale anyway. They were riding high because of the victories with Fredericksburg. And they had a lot of faith in Lee. So even though the supplies weren't that good and they didn't have the things that the North was, was going to be getting up, they knew about it. But they were still riding high. So even though they were, they were cold, had the same experiences in that really cold winter, of 1862 and early 1863 their moods were pretty good they were, they were all happy to see the spring come that's a damn sure mm-hmm. yeah their the mor- their morale was good too but they also had you know a man there like stonewall jackson he's somebody that the troops on the confederate side can rally around as well and yeah like you said they're riding high off that fredericksburg victory completely mm-hmm. you know well for, you know hooker he's aggressive but now he knows his army's ready I mean, he's got them motivated. He's got them fed. I mean, he's holding quartermasters responsible. They didn't deliver the the stuff they promised. So the troops are ready to go. He knows the Rebs are entrenched on a 50-mile spread up that Rappahannock River that was still centered in Fredericksburg. So he knows his plan. He has to get them out of that river entrenchment. See, that's that's the plan. Mm -hmm. April 13th, he has an original plan where he's going to use George Stoneman's 10,000-man cavalry, try to get behind Lee a little bit, uh, try to send a, a raiding party to Richmond, to force Lee to retreat. They're going to start it and it's going to pour and the whole thing's going to blow up. So Lincoln has that quote. He finds out about it and he goes, my God, he's failed already. Mm-hmm. But then he, they, they regroup a little bit and he comes up with a new plan. So he's going to have a three-prong attack is what he's going to do. He's still going to use Stoneman and put him behind Lee to destroy bridges, cut off supplies. And this caused mayhem. But he's going to create a fixed force and he's going to create a flanking force. So he's going to have a fixed force, which is going to stay in Fredericksburg. It's going to be just just basically a diversion under um, under Reynolds and Sedgwick. They're going to stay there and then they're going to create a flanking force. The other five corps are going to go and they're going to go around uh, across the Rappahannock and across the Rapidan. They're going to get behind Lee. 
And what they're going to do is they're going to put, what they want to do is push him. If they can get there without him knowing it, they're going to push him back, force him out of those river entrenchments and get him on the run. And once they're in the, uh, in the run and they're in the open, then you can beat them. And then hopefully Stolman's going to be there to slow him down as well. They're going to cut off the escape routes and then you got him. That's the plan. And the thing about it, in all honesty, the plan is really good. Yeah. And we'll find out how it, why it doesn't work, but it's not the lack of, of preparation. This, this plan is about as good as a plan as the Union had. It, it is. And, you know, a lot of the officers say it was good. Sears in his book, Lincoln's Lieutenant, says that it was one of the most innovative in the Potomac Army to that date. But there's problems from the very beginning, mainly in the form of miscommunication to begin with. Yeah. Here's the first OO reference. <laughs> Howard writes in his memoirs that from, from one mistake to another arose a dozen others, which contributed to our final the final loss, basically, that this has been marred by... Well, don't give away the ending. This is a two-parter. But, <laughs> Spoiler but you, alert. You, well, you know, it's, you know, April 28th, they finally start moving, right? Yeah. So they're going to begin to cross the Rappahannock, places like U.S. Ford we talked about. The river is still high. You know, it's been raining, so it's tough to cross. Yeah, Hooker does you say know, to Lincoln that the only thing that could screw him over is the weather, basically. Mm. Like he said, yep. he said to him that the object is crossing high up rivers to come down the rear of the enemy, holding strong positions. And the only thing that mm. can, you know, really screw me over is the weather. Yep. And so they start, they build a pontoon boat that's going to cross the ford and they want to what they want to do is their goal is really two things to keep moving and keep quiet and we're going to find that out later on with old stonewall I mean, that's the same concept he's going to try too mm-hmm. but hooker is confident now we said before how he likes to run his mouth he's a brash dude he's the guy you want if you like a confident leader mm-hmm. you know he has that quote he goes i can march this army to new orleans my plan is perfect god have mercy on general lee for i shall have none now if you're a soldier you're thinking freaking a after guys like birdside and these other guys you had but lincoln he doesn't he, he likes the confidence but yeah. he's like dude and he has that quote where he goes it would be best for the hen to lay her eggs first before she cackles <laughs> which i'm going to use in my working life mary I'm gonna use that that's an amazing so, quote well the other thing too is lee gets wind of hooker's overconfidence and starts referring to him him in correspondence as mr fj hooker awesome so so april 29th we talked about the, the, the fixed force this is sedgwick this is forty thousand guys so this is not like just a you know, this is not just a raiding party leaving behind fredericksburg they're going to leave him on the 29th and they're going to cross the river him and john fulton reynolds they're going to cross the rappahannock on the 29th without any trouble that's the thing is they get right across the confederates are still based in maurice heights and they let them come right across the flanking force, which is 70,000. So you know, 133,000 total, but 120 yep. available. So the flanking forces, you know, the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 5th, 6th, and 11th Corps are all going to be using this flanking maneuver to go all the way around on the left-hand side. So Hooker is going to take those five and the 70,000 guys on the, on the 30th. They're going to cross the Rapidan and the Rappahannock, and they're going to cross uh, north of Fredericksburg. They're going to go north around the corner. They're going to get in position behind Lee. Here's the thing is they actually get there. When they do, they can't friggin' believe it because yep. it was th- this was not a like a Hail Mary thing, but it needed everything to go right. And to your point, the weather, they actually get there. So yep. they find themselves getting behind Lee. And at this point, because Jeb Stewart is off running around chasing Stoneman around and doing other things he's doing, he doesn't, Lee doesn't know it yet. So April 30th, 1863, you can imagine... Joe Hooker sitting back with this cigarette going, I got a million guys. Yep. Right. About a million. And Lee is totally in the dark uh, to Hooker's movements at this point. So Hooker's going to set up his headquarters at the Chancellor House, which is at the crossroads they call Chancellorsville, which is an inn. Mm-hmm. Even though it was the only building there, they called it Chancellorsville. But in any case, it's in the in this deep woods of the locals called the Wilderness, which is just brutal, brutal it, terrain. It is Warren said of the terrain that no one can conceive of more unfavorable field for the movement of the Grand Army. Well, you can't march through it. I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you, you think, you know, you're, you're dealing with, you can't move wagons. You can't move artillery. You're always at risk of clown attack in this woods, <laughs> right? But you're finding yourself in a position where it's very difficult, but they get there. So at the end of the day of the 30th, the troops under Hooker are going to start to move east through this wilderness yeah. with the goal Ultimately, gets a Banks Ford, but what they want to do is they want to get to Lee, and everything's going pretty good. There, they go to bed when I'm getting into the first. The the morale of them is is very good. Like like Meade when he arrives, he says to Slocum, 
this is splendid, Slocum. Hurrah for old Joe. We are on Lee's flank and he does not know it. So they, they're, they're thinking Lee is still blind. And then Howard remarks that everything had gone really well to this point. Dan Butterfield said the same thing. Howard said that, let us notice again that on Thursday night, how favorable matters looked when Joe, when General Hooker was so jubilant and confident and full of purpose of pushing on the heights near Banks Forts. So they are going into this thinking, holy shit, we've got mm-hmm. this. And you can just imagine how good that felt after something like Fredericksburg. Exactly. And remember, the goal at this point for Hooker wasn't to fight Lee. The goal was to get him out of those out of the river and to retreat. They want him on the mm-hmm. run. And he's going to be surprised here in a little bit, but but that's the plan. But he gets there, and to your point, they're thrilled. So they're going to send his army down three parallel roads, the Orange Turnpike, the Plank Road, and River Road. And you mentioned the generals giving him prompts. Old George Meade, right, who, you know, the old snapping turtle, who hated everything about Joe Hooker. Hated him, right? Mm-hmm. He has that quote. He says, huzzah for old Joe. We are behind Lee, and he doesn't know it. Yeah. So even, even Meade's giving this guy props. So Hooker's cocky. He's expected Lee to retreat at any time. And it's probably right around now where Lee gets that text message and realizes what's going on. So he finds out what's up. He learns of Hooker's move. He knows he's kind of in a barrel here. He's over the barrel. He yeah. knows he's kind of screwed. He tells it, he tells Davis that. He writes Davis a letter. Yeah. He's outnumbered big time, two mm-hmm. to one. He's out, this is his worst being outnumbered at any point up until the end of that Maddox. I mean, he's he's completely yep. outnumbered. He's missing a quarter of his infantry because he sends Longstreet to Richmond to go forage. You without Longstreet and half of his corps, and now you're shorthanded. And now you find out that an aggressive guy like Hooker, who is cocky and has been waiting for this job for a while, is right in your backyard. If you're thinking about a chess game. This would be checkmate, right? Yep. You got it, right? But he's he's not going to retreat. He, he thinks he's going to ultimately go. But this is this is where where Lee is going to really roll the dice. And when you think about Robert E. Lee, you're going to think about Chancellorsville for a lot of different reasons. Yep. Now, the big debate with Chancellorsville is was this Lee's greatest moment, or was it Hooker's worst moment, or is it a combination of both? Right. So Lee is going to roll the dice and he's going to, you know, for the first time out of three times, he's going to split his army here. So he has his army based in Fredericksburg by, by Maurice Heights. What he's going to do, he's going to split it. Even though he's outnumbered, he's going to split his army. He's going to only leave 10,000 guys in Fredericksburg under Jubal early. And he's going to leave 56 guns. He's hoping the feds won't notice them slowly moving out because that line, you got 40,000 versus 10, which if I only knew a math major here, she would tell me, that's four to one odds. So if the feds would have attacked, they could have got rid of him right there at the Fredericksburg line. He says the rest of his army west to go fight Hooker under Stonewall Jackson, who still has less mo- uh, less men, but Jackson's going to attack. They say this is a case where the mouse would attack the cat, is what the phrase was. Yeah. You know, going into this, Lee is very scattered, and he's taking a huge risk with what he's doing. And he tells Jeff Davis that. He says of the Union, their intention, I presume, is to turn our left and probably get into our rear. That sounds really pleasant. That's got poor Savannah written all over it right there. Getting to our she rear. Had a tough time. She yeah, had a tough time. Geez, she's having a tough time in the Eastern Theater, apparently, too. Yeah, um, and that's why there's an E in the corner. <laughs> and so Lee says, our scattered condition favors their operations, which, as you said, he's taking a huge risk now. And he's going to hope that the Union doesn't notice that he's on the move as well. So he put Stonewall Jackson. Let's let's talk real quick about old TJ. We haven't really yep. spent a lot of time talking about, about Jackson. We, you know, we talked about him in Kernstown a little bit. It's a little background on him. He's born January 21st, 1824 in Clarksburg, Virginia, although the town of Parkersburg, Virginia, claims him as a sign that says he was born there. They don't really know. He's a descendant of Irish immigrants. He's the son of Jonathan Jackson and Julia Beckworth of Virginia. He's a third child. Jonathan, his father, is going to die when he's two years old, and Julia's going to remarry an attorney named Blake Wooden, who hates stepchildren. So that isn't, that's not a good thing right there. So uh, Thomas is going to end up going to get sent off to live, live with his uncle, a guy named Cummings Jackson, in present-day West Virginia. He's, this guy, his uncle, is very strict with Jackson. He's a hardcore slave owner. Thomas was a farmhand. He didn't go to school. He was self-taught. But he's interesting, though. What's a funny thing about Jackson, though, is he teaches himself how to read. He's an mm-hmm. educated guy, even for living in the country without going to school. He befriends a, a young slave boy around this time, and he makes a deal with the kid. He goes, listen, here's the deal. If you get me a bunch of pine knots for this damn wood, I'm going to teach you how to read. 
because he doesn't want to go get his own thing because he wants to read by the fire. He sends yep. his kid. The kid does it. He teaches him how to read. You know what the kid does when he learns how to read? He leaves and goes to freaking Canada. <laughs> takes off one. Amazing. So, they, so there you go. Another so, interesting so, thing about Stonewall is I believe his sister was an abolitionist. Yeah. Yeah. So no good deed goes unpunished. So West Point, class of 1846. You would think that old Thomas Jacks would be top of his class. But he was right in the middle, 17 to 59. Although he had a reputation of being a hardworking student which is nothing ever said and he said about me back in the day. But he was a classmate of guys like Darius Couch, who was in this battle, mm-hmm. George McClellan, George Pickett, who graduated dead last, as we know. And, of course, the great Cadmus Wilcox. Goes off to Mexico because a first lieutenant fights at Chapultepec in Mexico City, where he meets Robert E. Lee Mary for the first time. Talk about Lee before. He's mm-hmm. a Confederate guy. It's interesting. At Chapultepec, he refuses an order from his superior to retreat. He doesn't do it, right? And he ultimately stays and he ends up being right, and they win the battle. Mm-hmm. And I always think about Kernstown with this, about yeah. how pissed he got when they retreated yeah. with with, um, with old Richard Garnett. Yeah. And I think he was built to fight, 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 never retreat. That was what was in his DNA. Mm-hmm. And after that, he ends up going to teach at VMI, and he's a professor of natural and experimental philosophy, yeah. whatever the heck and that means. And he's not very popular. He's not, You know what they called him, the students called him? They called him Tom, Tom Fool. Yeah, Tom Fool. I'm full. But he's also the instructor of artillery. Religious fellow, admittedly. Mm-hmm. He says, my religious beliefs taught me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. Which I always thought was interesting because he was shot in battle and died in bed. But that's okay. It is what it is. I could make so, more jokes about that, but I won't. <laughs> I leave that alone. I can't embarrass the children. So, 1861, Virginia's going to secede uh, um, <laughs> God. And so Jackson is going to um, be assigned by the governor of Virginia, a guy named John Letcher, to hold commands at Harpers Ferry. That's mm-hmm. going to be his first assignment. We've talked about that before. He's going to come in the 2nd, 4th, 5th, 27th, and 33rd Virginia, which is ultimately be the Stonewall Brigade down the road. Mm-hmm. Talked before about, you know, the first Manassas and standing like a stone wall by General Beagles on the nickname. We're not going to go into the whole background of all that again. But needless to say, he has a reputation of being aggressive, being audacious at this point. In someone who's going to ultimately, somebody's going to fight. So and very ascent, he would be considered a little bit. Well, mm-hmm. he's very eccentric. So exactly. So we go from Bull Run. We're going to jump on the DeLorean and jump ahead back to Chancellorsville. So we get back here again, May first. Hooker is sitting here in Chancellorsville, his his uh, his place. Yeah. The last thing he expects, the last thing is a rebel attack because he figures, okay, we're behind them. Military rules state in this situation, you retreat. Mm-hmm. And so he's expecting him to retreat. So Jackson, again, not in his DNA, he begins marching his men west. So he's going to meet with Richard Anderson at 8 o'clock in the morning, the 1st of May, uh, in Lafayette McClaws. Um, they're going to meet at that Zoyan Church in Plank Road. They get there, and when Jackson gets there, he notices McClaws is digging in, for, getting ready to fight a defensive battle. Mm-hmm. And Jackson goes, no, 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 no. We're going. When it, we ain't staying. and We're not entrenching here. We're yeah. Get your sneakers on. We're going. They want to go as soon as possible. They want to go on offense. So 11 o'clock in the morning, he's going to order McClaws as well. Um, he's also going to William McCombe, uh, Mahomes' great brigade as well mm-hmm. to go west on that turnpike to head towards uh, the wilderness. So you, uh, you've got on one side the Union guys coming east and the other side the rebels going west. Yeah. So you can, you can kind of see where this is going. And he's headed right towards where Sykes is placed. And Sykes is going to see this and feel a little bit outnumbered when this happens. Mm -hmm. And he's going to send Warren back to tell Hooker this, that he's outnumbered and he needs troops. Slocum, at the same time, is working his way through the wilderness. And he runs into some Confederate pickets. And true to his name, he slows the fuck down. And he basically goes at a snail's pace. And he's not going to... Such such language. (laughs) Send your complaints to info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com and address them to the Canadian. Um, There's not a a bad review. Yep. (laughs) Um, So Sykes is on the river road and he's going to, he's getting attacked by Stonewall's troops and Slocum has run into pickets and he's being completely slowed down. Warren Mm -hmm. is going back to tell Hooker about what the F is going on. And all of a sudden Hooker makes this decision to call off the attack he does and what's surprising about it is you know it's not only just sykes who he has he's got two divisions of meads corps that yep. are going he's got charles griffin andrew humphreys he's also got oliver otis howard i don't yep. know if you've heard of him but he was in charge <laughs> of the 11th corps 
you got some of uh, Slocum's guys, you got some of Sickles guys. They're all going. Claus and Sykes, so, you know, they're going to end up bumping each other to your point. But Ambrose Wright and Anderson's division yep. there, they attack up that unfinished railroad. Mm-hmm. And this is where Howard pushes them back. So there's yep. Howard for you, right? But, you know, they've got the Confederates right where they want them again. Mm-hmm. So Sykes does fall back after finding himself unsupported around two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, this is what Hancock's division under Darius Couch is going to advance. The Union's making really, really good progress there. along that river road. And they're approaching the Banks Ford, which was their real goal at that time. At this point is when he calls a timeout, which Hooker does. Yeah. And historians will debate this forever about this, but he decides to call it off. He tells all his core commanders to fall back to Chancellorsville. And they are friggin' stunned. Oh, like, you they, can, Howard well, says in his memoirs, he was, quote unquote, astonished to get that order because he said that if he could have, Howard believes that if Hooker could have come up to the front to see where Sykes or Hancock was at the time of the attack, he would have seen his ability to concentrate was greater than he dreamed. So Hooker apparently doesn't have an idea of what's going on. But you also have Warren who, Warren admittedly, I mean, I love Warren, he could be a bit of a drama queen. He's going back to tell Hooker, oh my God, we're being attacked and we're outnumbered. And then he finds out that Slocum is slowing down. So Hooker just kind of does this this we'll fall back well he also hears these unsubstantiated rumors that longstreet's finally arrived yeah so it's it's almost like that sixth corps arriving at gettysburg mm-hmm. scenario with the first day with yule right so he has a numerical advantage and he completely gave it away so he has a great plan he has great preparation everything was solid only to fail at the execution it's like you finally make it home after a long walk you get yeah. to that front door and you realize you forgot your freaking keys right yeah. that's kind of what it is so the reality is hooker was probably intimidated by lee and lost his nerve where he yeah. just yeah you know it's like when you're going up against a really good opponent and you're beaten on psychologically on that- day one it's that that's probably what it was he probably felt you know what this is maybe too good to be true i'm getting reports from warren you know this is the room of the long streets here so you can see but this is he loses his aggressiveness and this is that quote he comes where he says that joe hooker lost confidence in joe hooker right yep. but the thing what's amazing about it though is even with this he's still cocky so he tells darius couch i have lee right where i want him certain destruction awaits him in couch he'll say later on after that meeting he says i left that meeting with the impression that my commanding general was a whipped man. Yeah, they're not happy about it. And like, too, mm-hmm. like you think about it, like imagine that you're like Meade or Howard or Sykes or any of these guys that have been meeting with Hooker the day before and you've got all this confidence, you feel like, my God, we've got them. Like we have this and you've come through that whole like, oh, we can finally you know, payback for Fredericksburg. Howard said, you know, as I said, he got the order, he was astonished. But um, he also says that it gave our whole army the impression of a check. So back to your chess reference earlier, this is he, the army felt this was the check kind of thing, a failure, a defeat, it was a sudden change from a vigorous offensive to a defensive into a position not good at all to resist a front attack and one easily turned. So Howard says that he knew it. Like how, and it's funny. Howard knows at that point they're falling back to a position that is not good. I think in Hooker's mind, though, is he saw this you know, this Confederate force coming, and he remembers what happened to Fredericksburg. But I think he wonders, look, I've got this really, really good defensive position in this hellish thicket of this friggin' woods. Mm-hmm. I can probably maybe find a defensive battle here. Maybe this is the way to go. So he maybe he had to change the plan. Now I'm just spitballing. I mean, there's no there's no excuse for what Hooker did because he completely blew it. But he does have a pretty good line, though. His defensive line is strong if Lee attacked. The terrain was brutal. Like we said before, you, you can't get the artillery and wagons through there. No. At least that's what he thought. Now, Lee sees this defensive position, and he still wants to attack him anyway. He feels he's got him on the run. He's aggressive by nature, too, but he's got Jackson, right? Mm-hmm. So he's going to send Jeb Stewart's cavalry around to reconnoiter the Union position, especially on the Union right, to see what's up. So um, the Union left and the center are strong. Couch and Slocum have built that sort of semicircle right yep. in the front with Meade to their left, and then Sickles is in reserve on Hazel Grove right behind. But Howard's going to be on the right, and, and so we'll talk about how his position was, but May 1st, on the night of May 1st, Hooker's going to be digging in, and like I said, where those guys are going to be. Howard's on the far left. Lee knew Stoneman's cavalry was coming. He didn't know where they were, but he yep. knew they were, so he knew the time was running out. He knew that if he was going to attack, it had to be the next day in his mind. So Stewart's going to return from his recon. 
and he's going to be on time. Shockingly, he kind of actually shows up. Like, oh, there you go. Right? There is no time. So he reports the Union right flank under Howard is in the air. So what's what that means? It's not supported by yep. anything. It's not supported. It's not anchored by a river or a mountain. It's just there in the woods. Yeah, and if you look so, at any battle map of it, you can totally see how that like just it how just bad off, of a position right? it was. You know, and so it's it's exposed. It's completely vulnerable. So this Howard the Eleventh Corps, Howard never expected an attack was going to be there either, but they certainly weren't prepared. They were they were just chilling, whatever the heck they were doing. Yeah. They were hanging out. But Lee saw he had I have, we have an opportunity here. Yeah, he saw that that was going to be the case. So he meets um, with Jackson for the last time in this night too. He, he does. Um, he meets with Jackson last night, the night of May first, and they're going to formulate their plan. They have to decide. Okay, how the hell are we going to move a bunch of people of true a large number of troops? around the Union right in one day without being seen. Invisibility cloaks have not been invented yet, so they had to find a way to do it. So <laughs> Jackson, earlier in the day, he sent their, their map maker, whatever the heck that phrase is. Cartographer. Phrase, cartography. He, he found one of that guy. Is. He, they got one. They sent him to go meet with some locals in the town to find if there's an area on the, on the Union right that they can get down. And he returns with a hand-drawn map showing a bunch of back roads. It's going around all the way to, to Hooker's right flank. There's one spot that you can be exposed. There's the trees. There's a tree gap, and hazel grows right there. But they're going to take that's good enough. They're going to have to figure that out. But overnight, Lee and Jackson are going to be sitting on the campfire, probably doing some whittling, Mary. <laughs> Jackson tells Lee, here's what I want to do. I want to take everybody I got. I want to friggin' go for it. Let's just friggin' do it, right? And Lee, he's like, okay, well, he goes, you're going to take two-thirds of this, of this entire army? That's a huge gamble. But they're like, yeah, let's do it. So he leaves Lee with just 15,000 guys to defend them. Here's the thing, right? You've got probably 60,000 people in your front at this point, mm-hmm. right? Because Howard's going to be in the back. You want to talk about numerical odds. This is going to be the second time he's going to split his army. And he's going to leave himself personally exposed, dare I say recklessly exposed, <laughs> Mary, in front of Hooker's guys here. Mm-hmm. So this is a point where Lee is really, really, really gambling. Jackson's going to be exposed as well on his march. The, the roads that they go down, they're not even really roads. They're like paths. Mm-hmm. So you're going to figure maybe like 15 feet wide. There's not a lot. You're going to carry 100 pieces of artillery. You're going to carry a bunch of guys, right? And you're going to send them down that path. Now, it's going to go on and on and on. But it's going to, Lee's going to risk complete disaster. And this is going to be probably the single greatest gamble in the entire Civil War, right? Yeah. I would say, realistically speaking. But you know something? Jackson was the perfect guy to do this. And here's the thing. Do you think if Jackson wasn't there, this would have happened? Nope. You know, the biggest question is, what if Jackson was at Gettysburg? My biggest question is, what if Jackson wasn't at Chancellorsville? It, it wouldn't have, because if Longstreet would have, if Longstreet had been there... He would have been like, mm. I, I think Longstreet would have would have hesitated a bit, you know, but someone like Jackson, I think it was just like Lee and Jackson had some, you know, like, obviously, they're and, friends and stuff. But and so, Lee, so Lee's yeah. point does Lee, if it's Longstreet, does Lee let Longstreet do it? Does he put himself in personal oh. trauma? This is where you, the, the big what if, Mary, this this is the real what if with Jackson. What if he wasn't at Chancellorsville? They caught up with the Confederates. In this case, he was. Because he was a perfect guy for the job. So yep. May 2nd, they're going to start around 4 o'clock in the morning. They're going to start. But as usual, they don't start till 8 o'clock in the morning. Then no one starts on time. It's always late. Right? Right. So it's going to be 8 o'clock in the morning, and the sun's going to be up at this point. The march, like I mentioned before, there's one spot they're going to be exposed. They're going to be marched on the road, and there's a tree line that's cut real short. There's a gap in the trees. And Hazel Grove is about a mile away to the north, and there's artillery. So the artillery is going to finally, they're going to spot these, this rebel column, and they're going to start firing artillery. And the troops, it was funny to imagine, as the troops reached this gap, they ran. Yep. So they walked, and they all, it was almost like the sprinkler. And it stops going, then yep. you run. That's how it was with the artillery. So it's about 40 yards long, 50 yards long, but that's how long the gap is. Hooker still does not expect the Rebs are going to try this flanking maneuver. He doesn't he, know. He's he's pretty confident. And like Howard goes into the day, he writes in his memoirs, he says, the Confederates became jubilant and confident of our final defeat. Hooker in motion was a great lion in their way, but he had decided to lie still and they anticipating his fatal spring would creep upon him and slay him. Now Hooker, according to Hooker, did expect the Rebs would attack his right flank. And he mm. says he sent a message to Oliver Otis Howard to prepare for an attack. Howard, of course, says he didn't get it. Yeah. And 
there's that story Scherz says, well, he, he did get a message, but I don't know what it it's said. It's written down. It, and it, there's, it, it, apparently there, there is one that is written down in the 11th Corps books that he got. Like, this is definitely a game mm-hmm. of, you know, he said, she said kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. But, but later, see, Hooker at this point, at some point, is going to somewhat convince himself. He's going to say, you know what? No, they're retreating because yep. this is the original plan. If I get here, they have to retreat. That's what the book says, mm-hmm. right? So he says, you know what? They're, they're going to be retreating, so I'm not going to worry about it. So he, this is a, his original thinking. They're retreating, not flanking. So Sickles, Dan Sickles, he's there as well. He's holding a Union Center, and he sees these this troops because he's up there at Hazel Grove. Yep. He asks Hooker to attack Jackson. Can I, can I please attack him? You know, so Hooker says, okay, and Sickles is going to move his line forward. Kind of like a mini sail, sailing thing. So he's going to move down to a place called yep. Catherine, uh, Catherine's Furnace, which is a big iron furnace. But they don't do a hell of a lot. They, they attack, but they nothing yep. really happens. It does not stop Jackson. And the funny part about it is they actually catch, you know, they, they're catching these rebels. They're yep. catching prisoners. And they caught this one guy. The, the rebel actually told them the entire details of Jackson's plan because he knew it. And he says, you think you've done a big thing here just now. You all just wait until Jackson gets around your rear. And they all laughed at him. <laughs> and he's like, okay. I'm all right, whatever. But, but they're like, okay. So Jackson, you know, he's pushing his guys hard. Mm-hmm. You know, Jackson, you, you have that whole, um, you know, the, the cavalry, the foot cavalry thing. Yeah. He's pushing his guys fast. And this is the same case as well. Now, some of his guys love him. Some of his guys hate him. And that's the always debate we'll talk about here in a little while, what happens to old TJ. Mm-hmm. But they always liked him in a way because he was aggressive and protected them. And there yep. was one soldier who said, it's better to sweat than to bleed. That was the phrase they would yep. say. The other thing that benefited Jackson, we, we talk about weather. We usually talk about weather screwing you. Yep. This one helps him because it had been raining. Yeah. So whenever these big troops march, there's all that dust that rises. But the rain kept the dust yeah, they down. Can't so see that. You, you couldn't see the clouds. So the Rebs are in great position. They're in great spirit. And they're, they're marching exactly where it be. Now, Jackson's focused. He's determined. And he has to march his guys. And this is the people don't, don't, don't give him a lot of credit for this. He has to march his guys 12 miles and then fight that same day. So you're not fighting and then resting and then fighting. That. You're fighting. So he's posting guards along all the streams so they don't stop and drink water and fill up their canteens. Oh you God. don't go, wow. go. So, he's, so he's, you can't fill it up. You have to keep moving. So yeah. they're, they're moving their guys about 3 o'clock on the 2nd. That vanguard of the rebel army starts to arrive at their target place up at the at the Orange Turnpike near the Wilderness Tavern. Yeah, this is their launching ground. Now they're just just west of Howard, and the thing about it is, you know, they're they're not far away. By five o'clock, the full core is there. They're all right there. So yeah, poor OO. He's sitting there. You know. He's been warned by Von Gilsa. Von Gilsa has come to tell him, I think they're coming. And Howard Howard just says to him, No, they're not. They're not like. There's, there's no oh. way. The the other thing, too, that is supposed to be happening is at 930 that morning, Hooker had sent Howard a message saying, you need to reinforce your line. And Howard's like, no, 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 I'm in a strong position. I've got this. So Hooker sends a telegram to John Reynolds to basically say, dude, you need to boot it, except he has sent that hours before and Reynolds doesn't get it. And this is the same thing that happens um, with Sedgwick the day before. Sedgwick May 1st has been told to make a demonstration at Fredericksburg at the Confederates mm-hmm. that are still there as kind of a distraction. Sedgwick, that telegram arrives really, really late. So again, right. it's going back to the miscommunication that happens during this battle. So Reynolds does not get that telegram until the morning, and he does not start marching until the afternoon. Hooker is of the impression that Reynolds is going to be there mid-afternoon to reinforce Howard. And that is not the case at all. Now, the 11th Corps we talked about, Howard's relatively new to command of that, of that corps. Yep. You know, two-thirds are German or foreign descent, including a lot of the officers. Now, they're not popular in the army. For one, they're foreign. They're precious. They, yep. also weren't, they also weren't at the Battle of Fredericksburg. No. Right? They, so, so there wasn't that, that, that brethren, like, we got our butts kicked together. So, so they're kind of there. They've always um, been kind of the kind of the, <laughs> the misfit toys of the, the Army of the Potomac. They're, yeah. Um, originally they were part of Blanker's division. They've been under for the longest, for, for, since they became the 11th Corps, um, or soon after they were under Franz Siegel and their, their slogan was, I fight, I fight mit Siegel. My German accent is horrible. But now at Chancellorsville, it's just funny because I'm quarter German. Um, 
But now at Chancellorsville, they are under the command of Oliver Otis Howard, who you couldn't ask for two more polar opposites to, well, to be and, working and that, together. And for that reason, they're not trusting these guys. And yep. think about those, some of the 11th Corps troops are starting to see these rebels. Mm-hmm. And so moving into this area, and some alert their superiors. Charles Devins, another Massachusetts arrogant guy who... Hey, at least he's funny, though, right? <laughs> you know, he um, he gets a report yeah. and doesn't believe it. He says, "No, no, no." He heard no. He goes, "I heard no reports from headquarters of rebels in the area, so I don't know what the hell you're talking about." A guy named Colonel Robert Riley from the 75th Ohio. He sees a large number of rebels west and south of his position. He later gets killed in this battle. Yeah. Ironically, he went to tell his superiors. He was literally laughed at and told to keep his mouth shut. Yep. So not to spread false rumors mm-hmm. and, and fa- set up false panic. Captain Hubert Dilger, first uh, Ohio Light uh, Artillery attached to the Eleventh Corps, he stumbles upon a Confederate regiment. Who knows what the hell he was doing, but he stumbles mm-hmm. upon one. He almost gets captured. He escapes. He tells Howard. Howard tells him, okay, that's interesting. Go tell Hooker. He's like, all right. So he goes all the way to Hooker to tell him, hey, I got information. There's Rebs out there by the on the, on the region, right? They go, they laugh at him. They don't even let him see Hooker. Mm-hmm. You can sort of see, and I think a lot of that is because of the distrust they have towards the Eleventh Corps. Yeah, they, they just, you know, there's distrust towards the Eleventh Corps, but there's also this disconnect between the Eleventh Corps and their new commander Oliver Otis Howard. Which just a little bit of background about Howard, because we've talked about him many times in this podcast, but I don't think we've gone into a lot of his background. He's born in 1830 in Leeds, Maine. His parents are actually both from. Uh, I'm going to butcher the state name, Massachusetts. <laughs> I can't say it. Um, anyway, they're from a different state that isn't Maine, but is in New England. He graduates from um, Bowdoin College. Also another graduate from there is Chamberlain. You pronounced, at, at least you pronounced that right. Yeah, at age 19. Um, and then he attends West Point, where he's going to graduate fourth in his class in 1854, which I don't know if a lot of people know that Oliver Otis Howard graduated that high, but he did. So after graduating, he marries Elizabeth Ann Waite. Um, They will have seven children. He goes down to Florida to fight in the Seminole Wars. And it's during this time that he discovers evangelical Christianity. And it's also at this time that he starts to wonder, oh, maybe I should be a minister, which his wife is like, no, fuck that. I don't want you to do that kind of thing. In 1857, he becomes a professor of mathematics. Imagine that. My favorite general is a mathematics professor. At West Point, but he's also going to give weekly lectures about Christianity, and he eventually will lead the Sunday school there for um, the faculty that have children. He will lead a Sunday school for them, and he's also going to speak about the idea ideal Christian soldier, and he's going to speak to a group led by E.P. Alexander is going to be part of that group. So there's there's our E.P. reference. So with the secession crisis and the firing upon Fort Sumter. Howard feels that this is actually the sign that he's been looking for from God to continue as a soldier and not join the ministry, which I'm sure his wife was like, thank God, you know. And Howard once said to his soldiers, and this is probably why he's not very popular, there are two things I hate. The one is drunkenness and the other is profanity. Maybe he was the one that left the review of the podcast. (laughs) Um, So he's going to fight in many of the major battles in the, the Civil War. Bull Run, Seven Pines, which is where he loses his right arm. He's at Antietam, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg. After this, he goes to the Western Theater, where he's going to fight Chattanooga, Atlanta, um, on the March of Sea in the Carolinas. And after the Civil War, he will lead up the Freedmen's Bureau. But where we are with Howard right now is at Chancellorsville. He's only been in command of the 11th Corps for just a few months at this time. The reason he has come into command is because Sickles got command of the 3rd Corps, and Howard was like, oh. I think I'm a bit higher ranking, Hooker. I need command. Franz Siegel had left the 11th Corps because Franz Siegel is kind of arrogant. And he was like, "Um, yeah, I want more troops. And they were like, no, we're not going to give you more troops because you're actually a really shitty commander. But his troops loved him because, again, the German culture, right? There was just something about them that they loved about Siegel. You know, the I fight Smith Siegel. So Howard is not exactly fitting in well with this 11th Corps, which doesn't, the 11th Corps overall does not fit in very well with the Army of the Potomac. And that's another thing to remember, that what happens to them here, 
they are going into it with a not good reputation. So mm-hmm. before Howard, they don't have a good reputation. They don't get their bad reputation with Howard. They had it going into it. And so they've got a lot to prove at this point. They do. And their reputation is going to continue through it. So, you know, 5 p.m., the Rebs are ready to attack, right? So Jackson, he sees the opportunity. So he's he, yeah. he what he does not want to do is we see like a lot of these these other battles got like you know, we saw piecemeal guy with like Braxton Bragg over at Shiloh. He wants to attack full on. He does not do this piecemeal thing. He's gonna take Robert Rhodes' four brigades on DH Hill, told to advance and not stop for any reason. Mm-hmm. No way, just keep going. He wants complete silence. He they basically spread out and move in the tough terrain. Just picture those woods because this is the really tough terrain, obviously. He's going to have three battle lines, two miles long each, and they're about a half a mile from Howard's End. Some movie about that, I think. <laughs> there is Howard's um, End. <laughs> there was. But um, but the 11th Corps, when this is going on, they're sitting around. They're not ready for a fight. They're, they're doing some cooking. Um, their arms are stacked. They're playing Twister. They're not doing really anything. They're not suspecting a thing with this going on. Nope. So you can imagine. So around 5.15 or so, Jackson asked Rhodes, you know, are you ready? And Rhodes just kind of nods. And Jackson just calmly says, then you may go forward. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Pretty, and, pretty and, cool, right? And Howard said that, like, all of a sudden, you know, they, they hit Von Gilsa first. And Von Gilsa just takes off. And keep in mind, Von Gilsa is the one that's been going to say to Howard, dude, they're, I think they're going to attack. Von Gilsa just, he breaks and runs, basically. Um, and Howard said that the bursting of thousands of Confederates through the almost impenetrable thickets because Howard is believed there's no way in hell that anybody is going to attack with with the train. He was just going off that. Mm-hmm. And he said, the wilder, noisier conflict which ensued, it was a terrible gale. The rush, the rattle, the quick lightning points at once, the road redoubled echoes through the forest, the panic, the dead and dying in sight. No pen or picture can capture what happened. Well, the soldiers also talked about the fact that when you get three Three battle lines, two miles long each pushing. They talk about the animals. Yep. Because they were pushing the animals, right? The, the, mm-hmm. Just all, all the stuff, the, the, the deer, the rabbits, the pandas, or the hell there was in the woods at the time. Tigers, lions, pushing bears, and lions. And, and they're talking about these animals running for the camp because they were just getting pushed. Kind of like when you dig, dig a development in the neighborhood, you, they, it's going to yep. displace animals. Same deal. That's what they were talking about. So picture 27,000 screaming ribs coming out of those woods with that rebel yell. They go right through Van Gilsen's camp, like you said, and these guys are completely stunned. The feds try to react, but they collapse. They, they're not even ready. They're going to fall back quick. The 11th Corps begins to run. It looks like the beginning of the Boston Marathon at that moment. <laughs> you know, Howard is going to, that moment where he's going to grab that flagpole, stick it in the stump of his right arm, and he's going to put it under there, and he's going to yell, try to rally his troops. And then when he can't, he's going to yell, I'm ruined, I'm yep. ruined, which is not... <laughs> Which is probably not a Poor good way guy. to justify your, your old Howard, Mary. Hooker, meanwhile, sitting at his headquarters, and he first learns about the attack when he looks out the window and sees troops running through the front yard. Yep. Right? It's kind of like Rosecrans at Chickamauga, and he's like, oh, yeah. who's that? Yep. And so they're, they're stunned, like, what the hell? Did this is how he finds out. And like so many times, what saves these the Union in this case is the sun goes down. Yeah. And the Rebs run out of daylight. So the night is going to fall and slow this attack. And it's really the only thing that's going to sputter the Confederate attack. But the problem is, is Stonewall Jackson is still got his blood flowing. So mm-hmm. it's getting late. It's dark. He still wants to go. And so he is going to grab a couple of his staff guys around 8 o'clock at night. I mean, there's no daylight savings or anything, right? I'm not going to apply at this point. No, in May anyway. So no. What is, what is daylight savings? Like, I actually asked the wrong fucking person. I don't know. All right, whatever it is. What, there is no. I just, I just changed my time. I don't remember what is standard and what okay. is daylight savings. But and whatever it is, one, one, not, like for six months okay. a year, my car's right. Yeah, me too. Okay. So, the, so, it's dark, but Jackson wants to continue fighting, but he doesn't know where the hell he's going because of this terrain. So he's going to take part of his staff, and he's going to go quietly to reconnoitre himself, try to find some roads. So he's going to look for some roads, and no one notices them leave. They just sneak right out. I don't know how you don't notice Stonewall Jackson going right by you, but they do. They, they mm-hmm. all go by. They find a road. They don't find a road, but it's dark. So they must have said, well, the hell with this. So they're going to start to come back. They're going to go past the 18th North Carolina. And allegedly, someone yells, halt, who goes there? And before they could answer, they get fired upon. 
So old TJ Stowell Jackson is going to get shot three times, twice in his left arm, once in his right hand. And AP Hill's going to be there, and he's going to get hit too, mm-hmm. but not as bad. But they're going to get fired upon, and they're going to realize they fired upon Stonewall Jackson. Now, the big debate that still goes on today was whether or not it was fragging, right, or yep. it was an accident. And no one, no one's ever going to know. No. I don't think they did. I think that was an accident, personally. I think, time, I think it was, too. I think it was, just too. Won. I, I can't. I, I, you know, we had some fun with that on Twitter. This oh, we did. Yeah. About that. yeah, we did. Yeah. But I, I think uh, I, I'm going to chalk up to an actual accident. Yeah. So Are you actually? Co- I'm oh, actually, you know. <laughs> but um, so Jackson's going to be taken back. He's going to lose his left arm. Yeah. And there's that quote that Lee says: "Jackson left his left arm. Left his left arm. I lost my right arm." The interesting thing about this is the doctor who cuts off his arm, they throw it in the pile with the rest of the arms. He says that's Stonewall Jackson's friggin' arm. Okay. First of all, he's like, I can put that on eBay. No, he doesn't say that. But what he says is, I need to give us a Christian burial. Burial. Right. So the doctor is going to actually take the bone, the arm, out of the pile, and he's going to bury it. And you can still go visit it today. It's, it's, it's still there. Just, so, it's crazy. You know, it's just, although there's some stories. It was dug up, though. Someone yep. came and got it at one point. There's a long story about that. But allegedly, his arm is still there. And, yep. you know, there's a monument at Chancellorville. You can go see it. He's going to lose his arm. We'll talk about what's going to happen with old Stonewall Jackson when he rests, crosses the river, rests on the shade of the trees here next episode. Yeah. Jeb Stewart is going to ultimately take over, right? Jeb Stewart's a kind of cavalry guy, never taken over infantry ever. Mm-hmm. He's going to get his first shot running the com- commanding an infantry uh, corps here at, uh, at Chancellorsville. He is going to ride back to the field, and he's going to make that decision. Now, it's, it's getting late. He's going to make that decision at that point to call off the attack. He's yep. going to say, it's too dark. We don't know where we're going. We just lost Stonewall Jackson. I, you know, I'd rather not get shot, you know. So let's let's shut the night off here, and that's that's what he's basically doing. And for a lot of people, they think this is where the battle ends. They think that's it. Yeah, no. Jackson gets hurt, and that's going to be the end of it. This is really just the beginning of the Battle of Chancellorsville. There's like two more now, days to Chancellorsville. What we're going to do, Mary, is we're going to stop it here. Mm-hmm. So we'll find out what happens to Stonewall Jackson. We don't know. He might still yeah. be alive. We don't know. Okay. Yeah. I do have a well, couple gonna... quotes I want to read before we end. Oh, okay. Well, knock yourself out. I'm just going to. Sit back here in the corner. I did want to end like, well, not end off, but there was a couple quotes that I wanted to read about just the the 11th Corps and, and what they went through. So Howard will write his wife a week later and say, on last Saturday, Stonewall Jackson attacked my right with a solid column with and with great fury. Colonel Von Gilsa's brigade occupied the point of attack and immediately gave way, broke up and ran upon the other troops with such momentum that they gave way to such a mass of fugitives. I haven't seen since the first battle of Bull run. I think he's being kind of mean. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you mentioned before about the 11th Corps and the reputation they're going to have with this and that, and, that, and that's going to continue on and on and on. But yeah. Um, but you know, I think, I think the takeaway is with this first couple of days, it's really two days, April 30th yeah. counts too. Um, the two days of the battle was how strong Hooker's plan was, yeah. how well he executed it, and how he balls down at the he end. Just he, ball- just, he, he just balked, and that's what all his commit. Like Howard's like, Howard, you know, that quote from Howard where Howard said, like, had he, he ridden up and seen Sykes' position, had Hooker actually been there, it would have been, like, even more than what he dreamed of, that they could all see that they finally could have had, they, they could have done this. Barlow, actually, he writes to his wife and he said, you know, I've always been down on the Dutch and I do not abate my contempt now, but it is not fair to charge it all on them. Some of the Yankee regiments behave just as badly. And I think that Hooker's failure this far has been solely from the bad fighting of men. Howard is full of mortification and disgust, and I really pity him. So, you know, Barlow, who does not like the Germans, which sadly, yes, there's a lot of prejudice against the Germans at this time, just like there is against the Irish in America at this time. Even Barlow is saying, we can't blame these guys for this. And that's the thing, like, Howard made mistakes at this battle. And I'm not gonna like, I mean, he's my favorite general, but I'm not gonna sit here and say he was, he was perfect. He he made mistakes. He ignored Von Gilsa. He told Mm -hmm. Hooker he had great positioning on on May the 2nd. He said, I'm in a strong position. Hooker believed him. But then Hooker also believed Reynolds was going to come and fortify that position. And Reynolds doesn't show up because he doesn't get the messaging. So there's a lot of things happening, which Howard said, you know, at the beginning of his section on Chancellorsville, everything about this is marred with miscommunication. And that's one thing you have to remember about this battle is there's a lot of miscommunication going on. 
blame can't rest solely on one person. It can't rest solely Mm -hmm. on Hooker and it can't rest solely on Howard for what happens on this day. The other thing too, that you and I talked about with this battle, Lee and Jackson are brilliant here with what they they do. They are brilliant. We've, we've, we've had our fun with Lee and had fun with especially Jackson and you got to give this was their high moment. Now yep. we're gonna uh, we'll talk more about this at the post wrap when we finish up the battle next next week. But when you talk about an aggressive offensive plan, mm-hmm. now we talked about the fact that he split his army twice. He's going to split it a third time at the end of this uh, again. So he's not yep. done. He, he ain't done yet. He, he's he's not resting in his laurels. Now as we go into this, this the, the third day of this battle, the Union's still in a great position because the Confederates is still split up. You got Lee who's going to be to the east, and you're going to have Stuart now, who's commanding Jackson's old corps. They're going to be separated, but with a hazel grove right in the middle. Yep. And the first goal is going to be to get together because they need, because you can get be- beaten detail, right? Yep. That's going to be Stuart's first goal the next day is to get back to connect with Lee. And that's going to be a big part of what's going to happen. Now, there are going to be some lessons that are going to be taken away from this from guys like Sickles about leaving the high, leaving a strong position uh, an artillery platform that are going to come up later, probably. But we're going to talk about that. But going into that third day, the Union is still in great position. Despite getting flanked, especially getting pushed back, they are in a great position. So going into that that third day, they're still feeling good. They're still feeling really, really good. Now, the plan's different than what they thought. They're not going to push Lee away. But they still think they can win. They still have the numerical advantage. They're in a great defensive position, mm-hmm. and they have the Confederates split in two. They do. And and we'll talk about how that's going to happen, what, what Stewart's going to do to try to connect, how Lee's going to react to this, and more importantly, what's going to happen with Hooker. Because something's going to happen with Hooker that's going to take him off the battlefield that's going to be talked about for ages. Yeah. Um, and that'll be something that's well. going to... And that's something that's going to affect this battle as well in future battles and affect his personal future as well yep. as they head off into different campaigns down the road. So... That being said, Mary, I think we can leave the boys there for the night. We can. And we can pick them up next week. So yeah. as we head off to sleep here, Jeb's sitting there in the west. Robert Lee's sitting in the east. Hooker's sitting there in the middle. Wonder what happened, but he's still feeling pretty good about himself. Mm-hmm. Stoneman's coming up. Longstreet's coming up. The Battle of Chancellorsville is still in action, still in play, and still up in the air. So we'll find out what happens on our next episode of this, we will talk about the second half of Chancellorsville. But I think it's a good setup to talk about some yep. of the things and talk about some of the perceptions of these people, like the 11th Corps we talked about, yep. some of the mistakes that Hooker made, and some of the strengths of Lee. So we could debate next time, was this Lee being really, really good, or is he simply taking advantage of Hooker being really, really bad, or is it somewhere in the middle? And that, yep. That's a good debate, yep. too. And so like we'll we said, too, well. you know, and like we said, too, like this, like this podcast is all about humanizing them. And I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say, again, that Howard was perfect in this battle because he absolutely wasn't. He made mistakes. He really did. So did Hooker. They all so did. did. They all so did, did a lot of know? them. So did a lot of them. But a lot of it was a lot of it's due to miscommunication as, as happened, happened so often and all that. But it, it's really interesting when you start to dig into this and look at them as humans and look at what a lot of them had to say about it you know going into this they're like wow we've got this we can rally after fredericksburg so you can't imagine how they felt when they got that order on may 1st to fall mm-hmm. back they're like oh fuck and at the end of the next episode one of these two teams we've been talking about is going to it's going to have their greatest win of the war yep, realistically they are right yep. and uh, most people know who wins this of course obviously yep. but um what Lee's going to do is he's going to be dis- disappointed because he's going to allow Hooker to escape. But we'll talk about that next time, Mary. So we don't want to give away the surprise. Yep. So if you don't know what happened in Chancellorsville, you have to wait a week and find out. It'll be, um, be like the end of that old Batman 60s TV show. <laughs> find out what happened. Yep. So any final words from you as we head off to um, get ready to talk about Hazel Grove and talk about the rest of this battle? Um, well, just shout out to all of our listeners and all of you who join us for our Facebook Live and our roundtables. We really appreciate your support. Um, thank you, especially to those of you who have left some re- or reviews for us on <laughs> iTunes as well. We appreciate the feedback um, quite a bit. <laughs> it's, it's still better. Anyway, I'm not, no, I'm so, not. No, actually, I was trying to say, like, we have some really nice reviews on iTunes. And I just oh, want to say thank you to those people for leaving those reviews fine, for us. No, we don't, no, one, no, no, one, no one cares. We don't care about no, that. But, no, we don't. But, but just but, thank you to, for taking the time to do that. Um, and just to you, Darren, for being, uh, as I say, always the awesome person to do this with. 
And thank you again for that discount at the Dairy Queen last week. You're welcome. Week because welcome. nothing better than a half price present. I might Those be able to hook you up with some DQ swag, Weeks. Oh, don't threaten me with a good time. Mm. All Ooh. right. <laughs> oh, okay. So uh, coming attractions, we're, we have our live again on Saturday. We'll talk about that. Yep. Internet, Mary, notwithstanding technical issues. Hopefully we're on time again this time. And then next week, we will go back to Chancellorsville. We'll finish this up and uh, talk about what's really one of the more entertaining and more colorful battles of the American Civil War. So any final words from you there, Fitzgerald? No. How about you? Uh, Nothing to say. I think I'm all talked out. I think I'm going to call tonight. All right. Me too. So anyway, thank you to everyone for listening. We hope you will join us for our live at 10 o'clock. That's when we always have them on Saturday mornings. Uh, My internet connection notwithstanding. Hopefully that doesn't happen this week. Uh, Thank you to everybody who understood last week and still joined us for what was a really, really fun time. So anyway, until next time, we hope you all have a great week and we will see you on the other side. Peace out. See you guys. Bye.